Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Thinking Transportation, a podcast with experts talking about how we get ourselves and our stuff from point A to point B. I'm your host, Bernie Fetty, editor-at-large at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Have you ever seen that sign on the side of the seafood restaurant that promises free shrimp? The sign reads, free shrimp tomorrow. That sign and its promise never change. Come back tomorrow and you'll get the same guarantee for the next day. Sounds a bit like what we've been hearing from the companies who are trying to build self-driving cars or what researchers call autonomous vehicles. Bear with us. We're almost there. That was 2019. Or was it 2018? So what happened? Where are all those self-driving cars that we were promised? Our guest has a few thoughts on those questions. Bob Bridey is a senior research scientist with TTI. He's spent much of the past few years studying what it'll take to make those cars work. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Thanks, Bernie. Great to be here. Could we start with some basics? Can you give us a quick lesson on autonomous travel and include in that, what exactly do we mean when we say autonomous? So probably the first thing that we need to to do is to just make sure that we're talking the right terminology. You know, in this type of environment, words matter. And people throw around automated and autonomous as if they are the same thing, and they're really not. So autonomy really means the full science fiction type movie um, descriptions of self-driving vehicles. Automated is basically highly automated systems that can assist the driver in driving down the road, but the driver needs to be aware at, at all times. The examples of what you might think of as automated are the typical driver assistance technologies that we see today, forward collision warning, cooperative adaptive cruise control, lane departure, keeping in your lane, steering, uh, those types of things. Those are all automated technologies. Autonomous would be, I'm sitting in the seat and I'm watching a Netflix movie while my car drives me to work. Okay, so automated is just a stop on the way to autonomous? That is correct. One of the ways that you can think about things is progressive levels of disengagement of the driver. So, First you have feet off, then you have hands off, then you have eyes off, then you have brain off. Autonomous is all the way to brain off. So, I mean, we've been hearing for quite some time now, for the last few years, those self-driving cars are going to be on the roads very soon. Why aren't they there now? The short answer is it's much harder than everybody thought it was going to be. You know, one, one reference that I like to bring up is the fact that airplanes, you know, the big jets that we aren't currently flying in, have been able to take off and land by themselves completely autonomously, you know, without any pilot assistance for literally decades. But that's because airspace is really a very simple environment. There's not a lot of interference up there. There's very set rules as to following distances and, and those types of things. Yeah, you don't have a whole lot of competition. Exactly. So down here on the ground where you've got, instead of another airliner being two miles away from you, you have another car 20 feet away from you. So the reaction times have to be much quicker. The inference, the pickup, the understanding the environment, it's all much more difficult. 
And one of the biggest things is that drivers actually drive not only with the basis of the rules of the road, but they also drive by intuition and what they assume and think is going to happen. You know, you're driving down the neighborhood street and, you know, the kids are playing a kickball game in the front yard and the ball comes out into the road. You know, a typical driver is going to assume that a child is going to run out in the middle of the road, not look and pick that ball up. and, and, And they're going to proactively break the vehicle to make sure that they don't hit the child. You need to teach a computer to do that. That's hard. The computer has to think. What you were mentioning earlier about the autonomous nature of a big commercial jet landing by itself, I think that that's something people just don't consider a car to be as complex a machine as a commercial airliner. So part of what we're talking about here is not just the vehicle itself, whether it's a plane or a car, it's the environment that vehicle is operating in. This is about more than just uh, uh, autonomous vehicles Isn't this at least partly about the infrastructure that those vehicles need to operate on? Absolutely. So you look at a couple of things. You mentioned about the vehicles themselves, and I'm not going to get the exact numbers here correct, but but basically a vehicle on the road today, uh, it's actually fairly surprising. They have about three times as much software code in them as an airliner does. So we have a much smaller vehicle operating in much lower speeds, and yet it has, you know, two to three times as much software code as a commercial airliner flying through the air. Yeah, and operating in much closer proximity to other vehicles in that environment. Correct. And so then you you add in the fact that there's all those complications in the environment. There's all these rules. There's signs. There's pavement markings. There's work zones. There's weather conditions. There's people doing weird things. There's squirrels that run out. All of these things are inputs that, that the computer system that's in the vehicle has to deal with that other environments don't have to deal with. And in addition to it being technology challenge and an and a infrastructure challenge, we've also got the challenge of policy, right? I mean, what about the issues related to traffic safety and law enforcement? Those are really good questions. You know, the industry has not yet determined what the answers to all of those questions are. For example, who's at fault when an autonomous vehicle crashes? I mean, it, it will happen. It has happened. But, uh, you know, the, the consequences of who, who's at fault, whose insurance company pays, you know, what, what type of data can you get out to support from it? All of those questions are, are still out there. It's one of the reasons why most companies out there that are working on autonomous vehicles are taking it essentially very slowly. They're certainly pushing fast, but but they're doing it very methodically. They're doing it with very careful assurance to uh, rigorous test protocols and all of those types of things because you know nobody wants to read about an autonomous vehicle killing people. Right. The margin of error here is really pretty slim. Yeah, and it's really kind of strange because, you know, as some of our listeners might know, typically about 30 to 35,000 people die per year on the roads in America from just regular accidents. You know, so, but yet if we had 35,000 people being killed uh, every year in vehicles that were being driven by computers and robots, there would certainly be uh, an outcry about that. So the standards are very different. You 
mentioned earlier, Bob, that teaching a machine to think, teaching a machine how to drive has been harder than we expected it to be. Can you give us a few examples of how that has become apparent? So, so I want to caveat my answer, Bernie, by saying that I'm not deep into, you know, the actual design of, you know, those computer systems and algorithms that folks are using. So uh, this is this is from observation only. But, you know, what it really comes down to is it, it's pretty easy to to program a computer to follow a series of steps. If A, then B. Or if I have a choice and this one has a better outcome, I would pick that choice. You know, those types of things. We, we do those things all the time, all day long. And our brain does that as well. But it really comes into the judgment call type of situations. What do you do when you're driving down the road the light in front of you turns from green to amber and you're 20 feet from the intersection. Lots of people punch the accelerator, try to go through. Other people break hard and try to stop. You know, those are individual choices based on their thought process of their risk, what they are willing to accept, uh, how people are moving through the system, what the environment is around them. Yeah, and how much experience they have. In exactly. Driving. Yeah. And and the weather conditions, you would make a different decision, hopefully, if it was a rainy road or a snowy road. And so you know, an autonomous vehicle's brain, the computer, has to take all of those inputs and assimilate that and make a choice in a nanosecond. And it might be a decision that has to be made with a set of conditions or circumstances that are just very rarely seen. That's correct. One of the problems is, you know, there's there's kind of two different paths that manufacturers are following to try to create autonomous vehicles. There's a mindset, you know, in one camp that is saying, okay, I'm going to put sensors on the car and those sensors are going to be able to detect the environment all the way around me. And I'm going to be able to interpret that environment and make any decisions I need on the fly, so to speak, without having to follow a, a path or, or anything else on the road, essentially with no prior knowledge. Like when we're driving down a road, you know, we're, we're going to a new address and it's a hilly country road uh, and, you know, you kind of adjust your driving based on the fact of, you know, what you're seeing in all because you've never been on the road before. Then there's the companies that are working on things that are more in the camp of rigorously mapping all of the available roadways so that there is a baseline of information, which would be equivalent to us you know, knowing the road that we drive to work every day because we've driven it 10,000 times. Those are two very different driving environments, and those are really kind of some of the different models that companies are using to develop fully autonomous vehicles. And all of those have to be taken into consideration in teaching that car what it should do. Right. And then you have to throw in your unexpected conditions. You've driven your work to route 10,000 times, and this morning you drove it, and there was an accident, or there was a work zone that wasn't there yesterday. Your brain knows what to do with that. Yeah. But if you're an autonomous vehicle, and you are looking to follow rules that you already know, and that information isn't in your rule set, that could be challenging. Yeah. But it could also be challenging for the vehicle that that is interpreting the environment as you go to make accurate assessments because it could be changing very rapidly. Yeah. 
Speaking of those unexpected conditions that you just mentioned, we're a little bit over a year into a global pandemic. Has that set of circumstances changed the research path or slowed it down in any way or sped it up in any way? So again, I I don't work for any of the companies that are actually physically doing this, but from what we hear, it's both help and hindered in some ways. The testing and the focus that they've been able to maintain doing some of those trials on roadway in areas because of reduced traffic and everything have probably actually been helped a little bit. But at the same time, you know, the whole concept of physical separation, social distancing, and uh, those types of things, and, and adhering to COVID protocols when you need more than one person, you know, working in a closed space, that's made it a little harder. But I, I will say that the industry that will be rolling out autonomous vehicles faster than anybody else is the freight industry. And they've been making really good progress over the past couple of years, including during the time of the pandemic, to continue to accelerate their research and innovation and on-road testing. Okay, Bob, can you talk a little about how the research that you and your team are doing, what what are you working on and how might the work that you're doing help to uh, move things along a little more quickly in terms of getting those self-driving cars out on the road? So there's research going on in all kinds of areas related to autonomous vehicles. One of the really interesting uh, aspects of of some things that we're working on with a team of researchers across the country working for the United States Department of Transportation is really looking at the future of autonomous vehicles and how they're present in all forms of of transport that we see. So the freight industry, you know, transit buses, picking people up at the grocery store and delivering them to home, automated deliveries from the order from Amazon coming to your door. How does all of that fit into the the system and the infrastructure and the road types and everything that we have in place today? Uh, and, and what changes would we need to consider to make these vehicles operate much better than they might in the environment we have today. We've talked previously about the environment, the physical infrastructure, the roadways, the conditions, the the guardrails, the driveways, all of those types of things. The environment might have to change. We might have to make changes to it in order to help these vehicles. We're also looking at specific examples of problem situations such as work zones and could autonomous vehicles that not only sense the environment around them and understand what they're seeing, but can they also communicate that to vehicles that are behind them and give those vehicles an alert so that there's additional warning time and then not every vehicle that comes onto the situation has to understand it and interpret it for itself. So that brings in both connected and autonomous vehicles where you know the lead vehicle understands the situation and then communicates it back down the roadway. Considering everything we've talked about from your vantage point as a researcher, what do you think people can expect in the next 10 years maybe? So as I said earlier, the industry or the portion of the industry that's going to experience autonomous vehicles first is freight. So those 18 wheelers that you see driving across the interstate, across the nation and you know on any freeway and, and roadway, 
those are going to progress faster towards autonomous vehicles than any other vehicle out there. It's a simpler environment for them. You know, they're doing long haul trips across interstates that are largely well maintained and have good infrastructure. We also get asked, when am I going to be able to have a vehicle like this in my driveway? When am I going to be able to get up in the morning, go out to my car, tell it to take me to work and catch up on last night's TV show? That, my opinion, it's a few decades off at least just to be able to make sure that these things are affordable, uh, that they're safe. And you've got quite a few drivers out there who really want to hang on to their 57 Chevys. Absolutely. There are lots of people that just love driving and love the feeling of it and being in control and making the choices. It's relaxing for them. You also have a heavy percentage of people who, you know, don't trust this technology. They haven't seen it enough. They haven't experienced it enough. And so they're like, no, I'm I'm not going to let a robot drive me. I'm going to make my own choices. You know, giving up that level of control is something that the industry is also going to have to to face to get this to uh, a much more widespread rollout than, you know, just in a trucking industry. So, Bob, whenever you're talking about, the, uh, I guess, the public acceptance of uh, self-driving cars, you've actually done a little bit of work in that area uh, not all that long ago here on the Texas A&M University campus, right? Yeah, we had a really great project here where we brought in an an autonomous shuttle uh, and we put it on the road in mixed traffic on a route with two stops and we ran it for three months to see how people would would accept it and would they use it and what their thoughts and, and feelings were on it. What were your takeaways from that? Our takeaways are that the technology is hard to uh, achieve consistency, but that over time, people did learn to trust it more. In particular, we focused on the operators. We had a safety operator, a safety driver in the vehicle at, at all times. And, you know, so our trust factors that we looked at were largely their trust factors at the beginning of their employment versus at the end of their employment. And they definitely increased, but that's just something that shows that it's going to take time and experience for for people to really meld this new type of technology into their everyday life. What I'm curious about is lots of us, you know, have interests in certain things about what we want to be when we grow up. I'm just wondering, whenever everybody else was out playing baseball, were you working with robots or <laughs> what inspired you to get started in this area? Well, I'll make this answer really quick. Growing up, I was always more science and math minded and not nearly as athletically inclined. But what really started me in transportation was in college. I knew I wanted to be in engineering. I took a transportation course and the professor that I had at time who was visiting uh, my college from Germany and who was one of the renowned experts in geometric design in the world was lecturing and he just brought it alive. He, he, he brought everything that he said. You could just see it in your brain. It just enthused you. And literally that said to me, this is what I want to do. So this is slightly different. What is it that motivates you to do the work that you're doing? What motivates me and really what is the most fun about what I do is that for all practical purposes, I don't ever do the same thing twice or or even, you know, two days in a row. 
we always have different projects. We're always looking at new problems. We're always trying to figure out how to make things better, how to make things more efficient, how to make things more safe. Doing that and the constant challenge of evolving and it being innovative, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Okay, Bob, given your predictions, we should check back with you in a few years, maybe to see if you might have a fortune teller career in your future. That sounds good. I'd be happy to talk to you about where we are with freight and see how my uh, predictions for vehicles in our driveway are holding up. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. This discussion with Bob reminds me of a brief study that TTI conducted just a few years ago. Researchers asked a sample of drivers in one city whether or not they saw a self-driving car in their future. The responses were split right down the middle. Half of the drivers said yes and half said no. AAA published their own study in 2020 showing that people are still concerned about issues like liability and safety. That suggests that a lot of Americans still aren't entirely ready for self-driving cars. And maybe that's just as well, because the cars themselves aren't yet ready either. Thanks for listening. In our next episode of Thinking Transportation, we'll visit with Greg Winfrey, TTI's agency director and a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Transportation. Greg will be sharing his thoughts about what we might expect to see from the new leadership in Washington, D.C. Thinking Transportation is a production of the Texas A&M Transportation Institute, a member of the Texas A&M University System. The show is edited and produced by Chris Porteau. I'm your host and writer, Bernie Fetty. Thanks again for joining us. 